There has been 1,654 minutes of nudge this year, and I've spent over 50 hours chatting with psychology experts. Over a quarter of a million listeners have tuned in, and combined, you've listened to 24 million minutes of nudge. All in all, that's a lot of content. And seeing as we've reached the end of the year, I thought I'd summarise the best bits of advice I've heard. Some of this advice changes the way I tell stories. Some of this advice changes the way I advertise this show. And one bit of advice changed the dates my partner and I go on. So stay tuned as we look back on another year of Nudge. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, today I'll start off with a few bits of advice that are specific to marketing, then we'll branch out covering some advice that relates to businesses, parents, and even couples. So let's start off with some marketing advice. Now, this first bit of advice is a no-brainer. It's advice that every single marketer who is selling a product online should follow. Here's Thomas McKinley, behavioral science practitioner and founder of Ari, explaining the first tip. This is extremely powerful. It's an extremely powerful use of social proof. Make sure that you show the number of sales that your product gets or the number of views that you get. Yes, this is pretty popular and you've probably seen it around, but I'm still surprised at how many don't use it. Uh, So really, if you're not using it, I highly, highly encourage you to do that. Uh, The study saw up to 58% higher purchase intentions thanks to this form of social proof. One question I get a lot is, okay, I don't have enough product sales yet. Now, here's the great news is that if you don't yet have enough product sales, you can show your product's number of views. And that has almost the same effect as showing the number of sales already at relatively low numbers. So, you know, a couple of hundred product views, it's already having a huge effect on that signal of probably how popular and high quality your product is. One thing you need to be careful with is if you start off showing the number of product views, once the product view numbers start to go up to say you know a few thousand a few tens of thousands it's better that you switch to the number of product sales because once we start reaching those you know 10,000 15,000 these sort of larger numbers people stop processing those numbers and they start to lose meaning so the effect weakens quite quickly so start off by showing your product views if you're just launching a product, and then quickly switch to product sales numbers as soon as you have enough. This study from 2021 is called Social Selling Cues. For the study, researchers showed participants an online product page with or without the views and or sales 
next to the product. And those are the views and or sales of that product. So participants might see a sales page for a Christmas hamper, for example. And the researchers found that people were 56% more likely to buy the hamper when the sales page included one additional line of text saying that 560 people had viewed this product. 56% more likely to buy just when they saw that other people had been viewing the product. And in another variation of the study, people saw that 390 people had bought the Christmas hamper and that made people 53.5% more likely to buy compared to when that line of text wasn't there at all. So show the product views when your sales are low and definitely show total sales when the sales are high. That is solid advice for online marketers. But what about advertisers? Well, here's a slightly irrational tip from best-selling author Richard Shotton that's guaranteed to make your advert more engaging. The, the generation effect was first studied in 1978 by Graf and Slameka, two psychologists at the University of Toronto. And in their study, they recruit 24 people. I think they were students. Uh, and they split them into two groups. And some see words like rapid, um, fast, dog, cat, whatever it was. The other group see the same words, but there is a letter missing. So you might see F blank ST or D blank G. And then later on, the two psychologists ask those people to try and remember as many words as they can. And their key finding was that the group that saw the words with the letters missing, they remembered about 15% more than the groups that saw the entire words. The argument from the psychologist was that the words with the blanks in were more memorable because it involved the audience. They had to generate the answer themselves. And that act of effort made the ideas stickier. So simply enough, they called this the generation effect. And it is relevant to marketing for a number of reasons. I think there is a danger in marketing, you think, you have to make the message so simple, so easy. You have to take all the work away from the audience so that they pay attention enough to, to process it. But what the psychologist would say would be, that's a little bit of a mistake. If your message is so easy to process, it ends up not being very memorable. Now, of course, you could quibble with this. Now, after all, it's a 45-year-old study. It was run on students, and there was a sample of 24. So if you have a big marketing budget and you're thinking about the generation effect maybe is useful for you, you might be a bit uncomfortable about basically a big decision on such a dubious sample. So what I did, um, 2021, 2022 maybe, uh, Mike Trahan and I went out and recruited 415 people, and we essentially re-ran Graf and Slameka's study. We gave people names of, of brands, whether it's banks like HSBC or cars like Porsche. Again, some people saw the full word. Some people saw the word with a letter missing. And later on, we asked people to recall as much as they could and recall as many of the brands as they could. And we found that people in the full word list remembered 81% of the brands, people who were in the generating group remembered 92% of the words. So, yes, the original study has some flaws in terms of the, the audience, but our work, which repeated it, shows this is, a, this is a valid finding. So if you're a marketer, you can have confidence that you can apply this and it will have a positive effect.
This is a simple way to make your ad more memorable. Cancer Research UK leveraged this brilliantly, creating an ad that read, the leading cause of cancer in the UK is O, B, underscore, S, underscore, underscore, Y. Viewers who saw this ad quickly realised that they meant obesity. And because they were figuring this out on their own, they were more likely to recall and remember the ad. But there are other lateral ways you could use this same bias. Burger King could advertise a, a mystery addition to their Whopper and have a faint outline of it in a picture and ask viewers to guess what it is. United Airlines could create an ad about discount flights to a surprise location with white beaches and palm trees. By engaging the viewer and making them think, you'll make your ad more memorable. But these two studies are relatively new. This year on Nudge, I had the pleasure of chatting with Sheena Iinga, author of arguably the most famous behavioural science study, a study that has been cited 5,630 times in other papers. Here's Sheena explaining the study. So the JAM study uh, was published in the year 2000, and it took place in an upscale grocery store that was located in Menlo Park, California, and it was called Drager's. Now, at that time, this was a unique store. It offered people lots and lots of varieties, like, you know, 250 different types of mustards and vinegars and mayonnaises. And they offered about three, over 300 different jams back then. And so I did a little study where I set up a little tasting booth right near the entrance of the store where we either put out six different flavors of Wilkin and Sons jam, so the Queen of England's jam or the Royal jam, or 24 different flavors of jam. And, you know, the usual flavors of orange and grape were not in there. Uh, So they were all unique flavors like quince and little scarlet and lemon curd, et cetera. And so now we looked at two things, in which case were people more likely to stop and sample some jam? And second, in which case were people more likely to buy a jar of jam? And what we observed was that more people stopped when there were 24 on display, 60%, versus six jams, about 40% of them stopped. And, And those are different populations. Now, when it came down to buying behavior, we saw the opposite effect. Of the people who stopped when they were 24 on display, only 3% of them bought a jar of jam. Whereas of the people who stopped when they were six on display, 30% of them bought a jar of jam. More choice did encourage more shoppers to stop at the store, 60% compared to 40% in Sheena's study, but it ultimately led to fewer sales. For the sake of simplicity, let's say just 100 people walk past the store. According to Sheena's results, 12 people would buy when less choice is offered, whilst only two people would buy when more choice is offered. Since the JAM study was published in the year 2000, there have been over 900 follow-up studies that have gone on to show the negative consequences of offering people more choices. In general, most of us could benefit from reducing the amount of choice we show and offer our customers. Removing links on your website navigation, discarding an extra pricing option, and reducing your product range really could boost sales. This was a world-famous experiment, but Sheena wasn't the only world-famous researcher I spoke to this year. 
Uri Ganesi, a Israeli behavioural scientist, has a study that's been cited a whopping 3,166 times in other papers. Here he is, on Nudge, walking through the experience which sparked the idea for this study. So uh, it was a long time ago, my girls that are now women, they're 27 and 29, they were kids in a daycare back then. And we lived in a suburb of Tel Aviv at the time. It was nice for families, but not good for restaurants. So for lunch, my wife and I used to go to Tel Aviv to have lunch. And then we had to pick up the girls by 4 p.m. from the date. So I remember that once we were late, I drove like crazy because you need to pick up your kids by 4 p.m. That's that's what you need to do. Then the, the principal introduced a $3 fine for parents who came 10 minutes late. Again, we were in Tel Aviv, again, traffic jam. This time I didn't drive like crazy because I'm not going to risk my life for $3, right? It doesn't make any sense, right? And that was uh, Aldo Stokini, my co-author, and I started to think about this before. And that was a great example of this where when the fine is introduced, you actually change the meaning. Before that, I didn't know how bad it is to be late. Maybe the, the principal doesn't care or maybe she is really upset with me. I didn't know. There was... Uh, incomplete information. Now I know exactly how how much is three dollar med. That's not that much, right? So I can I can be late, pay the fine, everything is okay. It gave me the, gave me the the right to be late. Now you can think about it also as babysitting services. I'm paying three dollar for babysitting services. But then we had so we ran the experiment. We had some bakers that for control, and we had some bakers in which we introduced the fine. And then after 10 weeks, we stopped the fund. So if the explanation was, I feel okay to be late because it's uh, it's painful babysitting, then there should be a drop in the treatment back to the, to the level of control. But that's not what we found. We found that they stayed at the same level, which means that it's really about the information. I learned that it's not that bad to be late. Now, we call the paper, a fine is a price. Basically, you put a price on, on how bad it is, it's only three dollar. I'm I'm happy to do this, and you can think about uh, other places where it's um, you know some places in the U.S. It's ten dollar a minute. Then you'll be on time, right? If I could execute parents who come late, everyone will be on time, right? So the the important thing in the in the example that I gave was that the fine was relatively small, but uh, it was enough to really change the culture, to change it from a culture in which you should be there on time to a culture in which well, it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's a different kind of analysis. In general, incentives have this tendency to change the way we think about the situation. So imagine that you go to France for dinner tonight. And usually you bring a bottle of wine that costs, I don't know, $25. Today you'll be busy, whatever, you won't have time, so you'll show up and give them $25 in cash. That's going to be very awkward. It's such a good example. Just to recap, Uri and his fellow researchers recruited 10 daycare centres with fine-free late pickups. There were no fines for parents at these centres. And for the first four weeks, they simply recorded the number of late pickups in each. Then, in six of the daycares, they introduced that $3 fine for late pickups. You would think late pickups would drop, but the opposite happened. The average number of parents who were late doubled. The fine, originally introduced to discourage parents from being late, actually incentivized late pickups. It shows that financial penalties aren't always as effective as we might think. 
Okay, so far we've covered the power of social proof, the studies behind the generation effect, the choice paradox, and the infamous late pickup study. The next tip is about how to create an engaging story, useful for film producers, marketers, and for conversations with your mates down at the pub. That's coming up after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. So what makes a great story? That's what I asked best-selling author Will Store. Will not only writes bestsellers, but he has also written the best book I've ever read on storytelling. So I asked him what makes a great story, and his advice was golden. I mean, for, for me, a really great story um, is about character and character change. I, I think the kind of, you know, when you talk about mass market, machine-made stories, I, I think the mistake uh, that that scholars of story have made for actually thousands of years is, is that they've decided that plots, they've argued that plots was more important than character. And that actually, if you want, if you want people to uh, be gripped by your story, you've got to think about plot. And that gives birth to, you know, all kinds of kind of story making devices almost like algorithms the most famous is probably the um the hero's journey joseph campbell's hero's journey which has informed generation after generation of hollywood screenwriter but 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 of course it's not that simple for every star wars that follows the hero's journey you've got you know a thousand failed (laughs) failed stories stories that just seem dead they do all the right things and everything happens in the right order but they're just dead and, but if you think about the the stories that that people really love, the stories that 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 just endure for generation after generation, indeed, whether it's Star Wars or uh, a Christmas Carol or sitcoms like Faulty Towers or Fleabag or The Office, they revolve around really compelling, really interesting characters. You know that th- that first Star Wars movie and and the, the the initial trilogy, yes, it did all the plot things right. But Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, C three PO, R two D two, they are unforgettable characters, much better than I would argue than the characters in the more recent kind of franchises. So and and I, so I think people have um, become kind of bewitched by the apparent magic of plot. This this idea that if you put certain things in a certain order, you're gonna you're gonna become rich and successful and 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 pack them in at the at, at the cinema and get to the get into the sometimes bestseller charts and actually if you look look back at the history of storytelling it kind of bears this out when you understand that all story comes out of tribal gossip for me that's what really under, uh, underlines this idea because what's what's gossip all about gossip is all about who is this person that that's what we're trying to figure out when we're gossiping about people whether whether it's people that we know or whether it's distant figures in culture like elon musk or aoc or um you know greta Thunberg or 
Andrew Tate or whoever it might be, when we're talking about these people, we're trying to figure out who are they? Are they good people or are they bad people? We have this fascination with other people, with the interior lives of other people, with the motivations of other people. That's what gossip is. That's what we're talking about when we're enjoying gossip. That's how reality television, that's how Love Island gets millions and millions and millions of viewers every every year. Uh, me, me being one of them, <laughs> you know, because because it's just this gossip machine that, you know, good reality TV, Big Brother, Love Island is this gossip machine where you, where you meet all these people and you spend a whole, se- a whole you know, summer figuring out, arguing, who, are they good people or are they bad people? Great stories talk about people. The best story you'll hear while down the pub won't use stats or figures or data. It'll be a story about people. A story that's based around a strong character is just wired to get us interested because humans have spent millennia gossiping about people. We can't help but be enthralled in their stories. So where possible, add people to your stories. Make people the hero in your case study. Make customers the hero in your product stories. And remember, a YouTube video lamenting the downfall of Twitter will be far less engaging than one on the downfall of Elon Musk, for example. But there's one more tip I wanted to include today. It's not a marketing tip, a business tip, or even a work tip. It's a tip about life. It's from Cassie Holmes, professor at UCLA and the best-selling author of Happier Hour. To start, she taught me about hedonic adaptation. So hedonic adaptation is our psychological propensity to get used to things over time. So when you do the same thing again and again, you do the same thing over a long period of time, or you're with the same person over a long period of time, um, that thing or that person starts to have less of an intense effect on you. That is, we get used to things over time. We are adapting. The more we do something, the less enjoyable it gets, which is a problem. Most of us are habitual. Most of us have fairly repetitive routines from Monday to Friday each week. Most of us do the same thing each weekend, which means most of us aren't enjoying these things as much as we used to. So how do we overcome this? Increasing variety among our experiences um, keeps us engaged and helps offset hedonic adaptation. Um, We showed this in work uh, with Jordan Epkin, where we looked at the variety in the activities um, that we do in our days and across our weeks. And we found that across the week, doing a greater variety of activities, but interestingly, it doesn't actually even have to be true variety, but even focusing on the differences between the activities and the things that you do highlights that there is in fact variation. And with that variation, it keeps you interested and engaged and increases satisfaction. I will say that there's a caveat because actually when we try to do too many too many different and a variety of things within a small amount of time, it actually has the opposite effect because it feels like you're sort of frantically shifting from activity to activity Um, And you don't feel like you're ever actually engaging and truly engaging and completing an activity. And that can actually um, lead to dissatisfaction. But as you're thinking across the days of your life and across your weeks, it's really important to infuse variety and novelty. There's uh, interesting work uh, which looks at uh, romantic relationships. And what they found is that um, partners who do more novel experiences together, report greater relationship satisfaction and um, show greater relationship longevity. 
I've shared this study at least three times on the show before, but I wanted to highlight it one last time. This is the study where couples were tied with Velcro around their ankles. They performed a series of novel physical challenges. So a very novel experience all in all. Other couples in the study performed a far duller task, rolling a ball back and forth while stationed on opposite sides of a large room. Afterwards, the Velcro couple reported greater satisfaction, scored higher on the romantic love symptom checklist, which involves symptoms of love such as experiencing tingling when thinking of the person you love. So if there's one thing you remember from Nudge this year, let it be that. Add a bit of novelty to your life. It is the best way to avoid that dreaded hedonic adaptation. Okay, folks, that is all for today and all from Nudge this year. Let me start by saying thank you for all of you who have tuned in this year. You have listened, all in all, to over 240 million minutes of Nudge. You've left over 400 five-star reviews and 3,000 of you have subscribed for the email newsletter as well. Nudge is now the number one marketing podcast in the UK and regularly hits the top 10 business charts, all of which is genuinely gobsmacking for me. I'm a one-person team and I also work a full-time day job in addition to the podcast. So the fact that Nudge is competing with other podcasts with a much bigger budget and much more resources is just incredible. So cheers again for tuning in. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show, for signing up to the newsletter and leaving the reviews. I really appreciate it. And let me know if you have any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there or on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew there. I respond to every message. So reach out and let me know what you think. Cheers again, folks. I really appreciate your support and I'll see you next year.